Well, Lisa and I were in a desperate situation. It was about five years ago, uh, before kids, and we had an offer on a house. And at the same time, our lease on our apartment was coming to an end, and the landlord was unwilling to go month to month with us. So we didn't feel good about renewing it for another year because we had an offer on a house, but at the same time, we couldn't stay there. So we needed a place to stay just while all the proceedings took place. And so we got this idea that we would move into an Airbnb. Uh, Apparently, you can rent Airbnbs long-term. And so we found several in Chicago that that you could do month-to-month. And we found one that you get access to the whole apartment. So we said, okay, let's do it. And so we moved all of our stuff into storage. The Airbnb was completely furnished. And so everything we set was set. We thought. We showed up. And the owner started showing us around the apartment. And everything looked great. And then he he showed us a room. And he said, and this is where I sleep. And so he said, I thought, okay, that's all right. You know, maybe we can work something out. It wasn't my understanding that that would take place, but, you know, we could probably share a space. And then he took us to the living room, and he said, this is where I hold, I'm not kidding, fitness boot camp classes at 5.30 in the morning, and you are welcome to join us whenever you want. So then I started to get a little more nervous. And I was thinking we can work this out. Then he showed us our bedroom, which was right in front of the living room where the fitness boot camp classes would take place. And there was not a door. It was just kind of like a curtain that you slide across. So there's no way we could sleep through it. And it was just kind of feeling funny privacy-wise. And then we also noticed that there weren't locks on any of the doors in there. So... Like, okay, but at this point, we have no other option. So we decided to sleep there. And uh, in the morning, I I went off, and and Lisa was there. She was in one of those rooms that does not lock all by herself, and she heard somebody come into the apartment who was not the owner. So apparently somebody else had keys. She informed me of that right away, and we were out we got out of the contract, but then at that point, we, we literally had no place to live. We, there were no other options left. We went to my office because we had no place else to go except for the car. So we went to the office. We did some research. I don't think we could find any other Airbnbs. We called the France in Riesberg, and they were able to give us one night in the guest room. But then after that, it was all booked up. So we're thinking, what are we going to do? And then um, somebody from the church gave me a call. I had told him about the situation, but I was just telling him about the situation. And he said, hey, uh, my wife and I talked, and we would be honored if you would come and live with us. Whether it's two months or a year You can be with us for however long you want. Please. I'm not making this up. He said, please, will you stay with us? So we said, okay. Thank you. 
Um, and so we moved in and we got there and they insisted that we take their master bedroom, insisted that we take their master bedroom, and they moved elsewhere in the house and slept there. And for a while, for I don't know how many weeks, we lived like that with them. We sat around the table. We shared space. And we just kind of shared life in that way. And they embraced us. And I bring that up this morning because we're currently in a series on true community. And what we experienced during that time was true community. That was an expression of true community. And I have experienced things like that in this church family over and over again. And I'm sure that we could go around the room and and share different experiences of true community. How at times we were embraced by one another. And I love that and I celebrate that. And at the same time, There are also expressions in this church family of a sincere hunger for more community. And sometimes both of those expressions exist at the same time. And it is just as sincere. That as a church, I believe we are hungering, we believe we are hungering for deeper community with one another. And in fact, there's many of us experiencing loneliness. And like we, we talked about last week, this is an epidemic that is on the rise throughout our world and in our country. That a report came out recently that said one in two Americans reports being lonely. One in two. And it gets more and more severe as each generation comes up. And it's in our churches and it's in our church that we are hungering for true community. And so that's the heart behind the current series that we're on. And so two weeks ago, Pastor Ralph opened us up um, from Philippians chapter 2, explaining the importance of humility and how essential humility is in unifying us. And then last week we looked at the example of the church in Antioch and the characteristics that they displayed for being a healthy church community. And today, we're going to look at the book of Ephesians. So I want to invite you to turn there, if you're not there already, to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. And we'll go all the way to verse 2 of chapter 5. So 425 through 5-2. This passage was written by Paul, one of the early disciples of Jesus under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's, he's writing it to a church. And in this passage in particular, he's dealing with how we as a church relate to one another and how we can have healthy, strong relationships. So this is a passage about community. And in particular, it gives us four instructions for building strong community. Four instructions for building Strong community. So let's dive in. The first instruction for building strong community is this. Number one, be truthful. 
Be truthful. And that's found in verse 25, the the first verse of the passage. Verse 25 of chapter 4. Let's take a look. It says this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So it's telling us, be truthful. And it, it, it has a contrast in this verse. What it's showing us is that there are two sides of the coin when it comes to being truthful. On the one hand, it's about putting away falsehood. And then on the other hand, it's about speaking truth to one another. So first, put away falsehood. I don't think we often say to one another, cease from that falsehood. And yet, I think we all know what it means about lying. And lying can take many forms. Basically, it can fall under two categories. First is when we make things up that didn't happen. So sometimes we make things up about ourselves that didn't happen. It could be an excuse. Like, where were you last week? I was working. When the truth is, we were working late on a TV series on Netflix. We make things up, sometimes to cover for ourselves. Or we make things up about somebody else. So can you believe that he said that? Or can you believe that she said that when that person did not say or do anything? We have just made it up in order to maybe feel better about ourselves or maybe out of jealousy for that other person. So we make things up that didn't happen. And yet it's also when, the second category, when we deny things that did happen. So did you say that nasty thing about that person? No. I'm way too holy for that. I would never say something like that. Or we deny things that happened simply in order to avoid consequences or something inconvenient, uncomfortable, or awkward. We say, no, no, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. And we lie to one another. And it's not just something that happens out there. It happens in the church. We lie to one another. And this verse is saying, put it away. Put all those forms away. Even if it doesn't present us anymore in the best light, even if it creates something inconvenient or uncomfortable or awkward. We have to put it away. And then we replace it with speaking the truth to one another, being honest with one another. And I want to apply this in more of a narrow way as a secondary application. Because I believe that there is a way that we can stand to be more truthful with one another. How? I believe that in the church at large and ourselves included, there is a temptation to present ourselves in a false way. And in that way, a little bit of falsehood creeps in. So what I'm saying is when we are tempted to be fake with one another or we're tempted to put on a mask, You see, we can stand to be more truthful with one another because we're so tempted 
to put on a mask. And so sometimes it looks like this. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm good. When in reality, we're really struggling. Or, hey, how's it going with your wife? Oh, man, we are awesome. It's like a perpetual honeymoon in our home. When the reality is, you were up late the last night screaming at one another, and one of you threatened to leave. That's real. Or maybe it's not even with what we say, but even just how we present ourselves. So there could be deep sadness going on in our lives, or maybe even a season of doubt. But then we feel like when we gather together, sometimes we feel like we have to check that at the door. And we come here and we feel pressure to maybe put on a church smile, like Mr. Potato Head, you know? Or only speak church answers to one another. When if we would take off our masks, it would allow God, through his people, to meet us in that sadness. And to meet us in those seasons of doubt. And yet we have to be real with one another. There's a way we can be more truthful with one another. And I'm not saying tell everyone everything all the time. But as a community, to find ways we can take off our masks. Because can you imagine how powerful and how healing it would be as a community if we felt like we could be real with one another and take off our masks? Like this could be a place where we could come in and bring our sadness in and bring our struggles at home in and and bring our seasons of doubt in and that God would meet us in those places through His people. Isn't that exciting to think about? And I know that we can do it. Do you know one of the healthiest conversations I, I ever witnessed here at Good News? It happened a few years ago, and, and, and I think it also illustrates that we don't have to tell each other everything, but we can be real. So I'm, I'm walking up to, to two guys years ago as they were greeting one another, and one of them said, hey, how are you? And the other said, I'm struggling. And this one said, thank you for being honest. That was real. That was real. Maybe it went deeper after that, but it didn't have to. It was just a moment of honesty. And the more we can be that with one another, the more we can be truthful with one another. So, this is an encouragement to take off our masks and speak the truth to one another. Why? Why does it say in, in verse 25 there's a lot of reasons we could give for, for being true with one another? I mean, there's all sorts of reasons throughout Scripture, but look at what Paul says by the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, because, for, we are members one of another. In other words, we're not just a bunch of individuals gathered together all in the same place like sardines in a can, but in a very real way, there's something else going on here where we belong to one another where we share a common life together. And because of that, we put away dishonesty because dishonesty ruptures that. And instead we speak truth to one another because that strengthens our oneness. And as we do that, as we are truthful with one another, we will experience stronger community. So that's number one. Be truthful. 
The second instruction we receive for building stronger community in this passage is this. Be at peace. So be truthful. And now be at peace. And this is found in in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 4. Let's read. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So verse 26 kind of starts out in a confusing way. It says, be angry. What does that mean? Like, come on, y'all, get upset. You've got to get mad. I don't think it's a command. I think it's best understood as, in the event that you are angry, do not sin. In other words, when anger happens, and it will happen, because anger is a part of life. And I don't know if there's anyone in this room who is a robot and feels no anger like, I feel no anger. I think we're all human. Anger will happen. And anger in itself is not a sin. But this passage is very clear. The moment you become angry, be on the lookout. There should be sirens going on inside and whistles and bells and flags for you to be on the lookout because the moment you become angry, it is very easy to sin. That's what this is saying. In the event that you become angry, look out and do not sin. And that's why it's calling us to deal with our anger right away. That's why it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I don't think this is talking extremely literally, like, okay, it's 7.59, you have until sundown to deal with your anger, go. But what it's saying is deal with it quickly. Don't let it linger, don't let it fester, because it will so easily lead to sin in thought, in speech, and in action. And an interesting thing about this verse is that word for anger, I've seen it translated provocation. So it's not just talking about the feelings of anger. Like by the end of the day, we're laying in bed and we're like, God, just let these angry feelings evaporate. Take them from me. Sure, there's a place for that, but what this is really saying is, Deal with your provocation. Deal with the reason why you are angry, angry, the source of your anger, the cause of your anger. In other words, deal with the issue. Deal with the conflict. Quickly. And I think this echoes the teaching of Jesus, our Master, in his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount. He said, if, if, you're going to, if you're at the altar, offering your sacrifice, in other words, and we could translate that, we could apply that to ourselves as a church. If you are at church for worship and realize that, that someone has something against you, leave what you're doing and go and be reconciled. That's what a priority it is, that we would leave gathering for worship and go and be reconciled. 
In fact, if some of you during this sermon got up and went and made a phone call, that would be a perfect application. And I realize that in saying that, now every single one of you is afraid of going to the bathroom because you'll get up and people will be like, oh, But seriously, it is a priority to deal with conflict right away. Another reason why is in the next verse. In verse 27, it says, And give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, when there is undealt with anger and unresolved conflict in our midst, it's like opening space for the devil to come in and do his work. And what is his work? It is to tear us apart as a community. Because as a church family, we will have a very hard time in our mission from God and experiencing the joy of God if we are torn apart. So that's his work. And when we don't resolve conflict, it leaves this space open. I mean, imagine that there was just pack of rats on your porch, like running around at night, like, Wah! How many of you would leave the door open a crack to let them come in and start tearing apart your house? I don't think many of us would do that. I think we would close the door. We need to close the door and not make space for the evil one and his tactics of tearing us apart. How we do that according to these verses is dealing with dealing with the conflict. And so I want to encourage us. I am not thinking of anything in specific. I want you to know that my mind is blank. But I know that there most likely, in fact, almost definitely exists unresolved conflict in this room. And I want to urge us on the basis of this passage that we would come before the Lord and say, God, would you help me deal with this right away? How do we deal with it? I think verse 32 in this passage actually completes the thought of this point. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. So that's, that's what we do. Forgive one another. And yet it doesn't stop there. It drops the bomb. It says, as God in Christ forgave you. That's how we forgive one another. That's the model and that's the power of our forgiveness. So, so first of all, it's the model. We forgive one another in the same way that we have been forgiven. So first of all, I think it helps to remember that God is the offended one. And we are the ones who sinned against him and, and, and went against him by our sin, by turning our backs on him. And our sin essentially said to him, I want nothing to do with you. And yet, as the offended one, he reached out to us. He reached out to us to the point of sending his son who gave his life in our place that we might be fully forgiven when we believe. 
You see, before we came to him, he came to us. In other words, he made the first move. So there are some of us in this room, and there's conflict between us and somebody else. And maybe we're tempted to let the other person make the first move. In fact, maybe we were the person sinned against. Sometimes our temptation is to say, okay, well, I'm, I'm willing to forgive. I'm just waiting for that person to come to me. And yet this passage says, if we forgive like God forgave us, we make the first move regardless because that's what he did to us. He didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to us. He made the first move. And, and number two, when we forgive like he forgave us, we, as much as we can, offer full forgiveness. Because God didn't just say, I forgive you, and then kept looking at us with the stink eye. He gave us full, complete forgiveness. And this is hard for us, humanly speaking, but I know God can help us. And, and one resource that I find helpful is, is from Peacemakers Ministries, a ministry that works with conflict resolution. I, I love Peacemaker Ministries. You can look it up. And I, I'll read to you. There's no way you'll be able to write it down if you're someone who loves to write things down. But I can get, you'll get a copy later. Here are the four promises of forgiveness. And it helps us in offering one another full forgiveness. So here they are. When we forgive somebody. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And then number four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I think that helps us with full forgiveness. And I think that's the kind of forgiveness that God gives us perfectly. So his forgiveness is the model for our forgiveness. And it's also the power because I fully recognize that forgiveness is easier said than done. That forgiveness for people who have hurt us deeply can be really challenging. And so what's our power? It's how God in Christ forgave us. It helps to remember just how much we've been forgiven, how he piled it on our lives. He gave it to us in heaps. He forgave everything when we were so ugly to him. He just poured it out. And when we've received that abundance of forgiveness, who are, who are we to be stingy with other people? Who are we to keep it to ourselves? You see, that's our power. That's our power for forgiving one another. And when we do that, I believe we will resolve our conflicts. We will give the devil no opportunity and we will be at peace. And as we are at peace, I believe we will build stronger community. So the third instruction for building stronger community is this. Number three. Be careful with words. Be careful with words. And that's found 
in verses 29 and, and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. These verses highlight the incredible significance of our words. Sometimes we downplay the impact of our words, but the Bible does not. I mean, this is all over the Bible, and I think one place where it is most clear is in in the book of Proverbs. So I want to take us to the book of Proverbs just to look at some of the examples there. It mentions 59 times in the book of Proverbs the great impact that our words have. It's amazing. I, I pulled out some of my favorites. So here's the first. I think it's just taking the computer a little bit to think because it's hot. Yes. So the first says this. The tongue that heals is a tree of life. But a devious tongue breaks the spirit. Our words can bring healing or break someone's spirit. Let's look at the next. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. In other words, our words can stab people or bring healing. Let's look at the next. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Let's look at the next. This is probably the most famous. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life. Do you see how much our words matter? And that we should not be careless with the way we speak. In fact, in fact that's what Jesus said. He said in, in Matthew 12, verse 36, look at what he says. Jesus, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Isn't that sobering? Our words matter so much that we can't be careless with them. And that's what's echoed in chapter 4 here of the book of Ephesians. That our words can cause such damage or bring such healing. So on the one hand, because they can damage so much, Paul says, by the Spirit, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And that word for corrupting is used elsewhere of fruit that is rotten or fish that is spoiled. Just think about a spoiled fish. And that's the kind of stench and foulness and decay that we can impart in somebody else's life through our words. And verse 31 of our passage is examples of that. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, and clamor means shouting at one another, a shouting match, and slander, Slander is not just gossip, but all the ways that we can be violent towards one another with our words. Be put away 
from you along with all malice. In other words, because our words can impart decay and create such damage and be so violent for somebody else, put it, sorry, put it all away. Put it all away and instead, instead realize how much healing our words can bring. That's what the, the rest of, of verse 29 says. It says, speak in a way that builds up as fits the occasion. And I like better the translation, as fits the need. In other words, when someone else is sharing with us, we, we are actually listening. We're not just waiting for our turn to talk, but actually listening to that person, discerning the need, so that we can target our words towards that need, that it might give grace to those who hear. In other words, grace is a gift, so that our words might come to somebody like a gift, like a gift given to them. This can be in the way that we just listen and interact with one another. But I like how one scholar pointed out in in discussing this verse, it's also the way that we speak for one another. In other words, when we pray for one another in one another's presence, that other person can hear us lift their need before God, before his throne, and it can give them such grace, be such a gift that builds them up. So it's how we speak to one another and for one another in prayer and and I experienced that recently, about, no, exactly four weeks ago. I showed up to church really discouraged. You see, that morning, I put on a brand new undershirt, never worn before. And I put on a brand new shirt, never worn before. And I put on some really old shoes with zero tread. And then I poured myself a whole cup of coffee. And I ran out the door. And it had been raining. And my back porch wooden steps were slimy, slippery. And all of a sudden, with zero tread in my shoes, it was like a scene out of a cartoon where my feet slipped up from underneath me. And I'm like midair. And I literally threw my coffee into the air. And it came crashing on my head. But I only drink cold coffee. But it soaked my new shirt. It soaked my new undershirt. Somehow the coffee cup broke, even though it was plastic, and then, boom, I landed straight on the steps, and it felt like someone had stabbed me. I mean, I thought I did something serious to myself. In fact, it knocked the wind out of me, which hadn't happened since I was a little kid, so I was like, (gasps) and then once I could breathe, I was in so much pain, I started running around the yard, howling in pain. It was early in the morning. A neighbor saw me and kind of looked the other way. I was in so much pain. And I showed up to church, and it was still shooting pain in my back. I had no idea what had happened. And my body was, like, still braced. And, like, my breathing was a little bit weird. It was, I was discouraged. But I'll tell you why I was even more discouraged. Because the very next day, we were supposed to leave on our first family vacation ever. Just us. And we were going to drive all the way down to our favorite place in the nation, Smoky Mountain National Park. And at the park, I was supposed to carry Zoe on my back for our hikes. So I was like, okay, vacation ruined. I don't even know how I'm going to pack the van today. So I was discouraged. And then somebody afterwards, uh, I explained you know, how I was discouraged and and he said, you know what, can I pray for you right now? 
And he just prayed for me and lifted my need before God. And it was like a gift. It was like, it was like balm to my soul. It, honestly, it shifted my perspective just enough that I came away from that like, okay, you know what? It's going to be all right. And you know what? It was all right. That was a great gift given to me. And yet it was, when you think about it, it was so simple. Sometimes sermon applications are like, sometimes I feel like they're a thousand miles away. And by the grace of God, we we can do those things. But I want to say, this is a really simple one. This is like something that we could start immediately. Just being mindful of speaking life to one another and for one another when we get opportunity, realizing what a, what, what a difference it can make. Our words have such power, and yet they also have power to tear down. And when we do that, our passage says it grieves the Holy Spirit. You see, verse 30 about grieving the Holy Spirit is primarily connected to verse 29 about the way we use our words. So when we use our words to tear one another down, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Why? Have you ever worked really hard on something? Like labored at it, like worked all day at something. And then you step away for a little bit and somebody else comes along and messes it up. And then you come back and you're like, ah! What? That's grief. That's the feeling that we can give the Holy Spirit, when we tear down one another with our words. Why? What's his job? What's the Holy Spirit's job? What's he working on? Let's look in Ephesians verse, chapter 2, verse 22. Really quick. It says this, In him you, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then look really quick at 4.3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The unity that comes from the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, what the Holy Spirit is doing, what the Holy Spirit's job is, is to bring us together and unify us. And yet when we tear one another down with our words, it's like we are undoing His job. Like, ah! And that gives that feeling of grief, that we can grieve the Spirit in that way. That's the imagery being used here. So our words really matter. They matter in ways that we can tear one another down, but also bring such healing to one another. So let's not grieve the Spirit. Let's speak life to one another. Whether in how we respond to somebody, listening to them, or even how we pray for one another. And I believe that when we do that, when we are careful with our words, we will build stronger community. And finally, the last instruction that we receive for building stronger community, number four, is this. Be loving. Be loving. Of course it's love. How could we have a series about true community without mentioning love? Be loving, and that's found in Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Let's read it. Therefore, be imitators of God 
as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be loving. This is the summary of our whole passage here. And it, it starts out by saying, be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, as, as people who have been adopted by your faith in Jesus Christ, as, as God's children, imitate him. Show the family resemblance. And how do we show the family resemblance? Love. By walking in love. And that means loving over and over and over again. Because very few of us walk like this. No, walking is one thing after another thing, after another thing, after another thing. Just walk in love. Because that's what we are, are called to do. So let's love one another, right? Let's wait for that mushy feeling to well up inside of us. And when it does, just give it away. Just give it away to people that we naturally connect with and, and people that we're drawn to, right? No, how does it say to love? It drops the bomb again two times in this passage. Paul has dropped this bomb. We forgive one another as God and Christ forgave us. And now look, we love one another as Christ loved us. And how did he love us? He gave himself for us. He gave. I'm astonished by how often... God's love for us and the word give is paired together in Scripture. So John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he so loved the world that he gave. And one of my favorite verses uh, in Galatians chapter 2, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And then here, He loved us and gave himself for us. So the love that we receive from God is love that is simply given. It is simply given. God does not wait for us to earn it. We never could. God does not wait for us to deserve it. We never could. He simply just gives it to us without us having to do anything for us to receive it. He just gives it away. And think about it. Think about what it could look like when we more and more love like this, when we love like this, nobody has to come in and feel like they need to earn our love in any way. It is just simply given away to them. Nobody feels like they have to be the right person or say the right things or be easy to get along with or, or, or look a certain way or, or, or not get on our nerves. That Anyone can come in and just be given love. And be given love over and over and over again. Do you know how powerful that could be? Even when we don't deserve it. Even when we've done something to the other person. And I'm not saying that love is always really soft and cuddly. But it is always given, no matter what. His love is a love that gives. And it's also a love that is sacrificial. He gave himself for us as a sacrifice. He laid his life down in our place so that we might be forgiven when we believe. 
given for our good. And when we love like him, it looks like real acts for the sake of somebody else that sometimes requires sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of thoughtfulness. Because sometimes it takes something to be thoughtful. Or the sacrifice of attention or energy or time. Sometimes part of us would rather be doing something else. But then love surpasses that and leads us to make sacrifices of time for other people, sacrifices of resources that we love in real ways beyond feelings because he loved us in real ways beyond feelings. And so we give one another this true love and give one another and give it to one another and give it to one another over and over. And how do we do this? How do we keep this up? I believe God enables us to do it. But I believe the secret is in chapter 5, verse 1. Specifically, the secret's in chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, As beloved children. In other words, carry this out. As beloved children. That we are the ones who God has set his love on. And he doesn't just give it out in just like a little bit. Scripture says he pours it out. He floods it into, his, into our hearts. That's what Romans 5, 5 says that he just pours his love into our hearts. And so as we are receiving love for him over and over and over again into our hearts, we're able just to give it to one another and be generous with it to one another. That that is the secret. Like if you won a random raffle and you were given a lifetime supply of LaCroix, wouldn't you be giving it away? Like, what if it was just delivered to your house by the forklift load every month? Wouldn't you just be giving it away? Or maybe some of you would be hoarding it for the next Y2K. But most of us would just be giving it away and giving it away and giving it away because there's plenty to give. And yet, God's love is delivered into our hearts in the forklift load every day so that we have plenty to give away. We are His beloved children. And as I prayed through this, I wanted to say this, because I think it starts with knowing how loved we are. He loves you. He really, actually loves you. I know it sounds like a nice thought, but he, he, he really, actually loves you. And some of you struggle to believe that because of how you feel about yourself, but he really, actually loves you. And when we receive his love, poured into our hearts, we can be generous and give it away to others and be a community defined by love from him. Let's give it away. So, hey, church, let's be truthful. Let's be at peace. Let's be careful with our words. And let's be loving. And I believe that as we are, God will enable us to build stronger community. To this point, I want to invite the band to come forward. And as they come up and just begin to play, a few songs. I actually have a booklet in the back. I, so 
if Kano, if you, and maybe somebody else could join Kano. I didn't want to give it to you from the front end because I didn't want it to distract you. So this is just a booklet to help us reflect. And uh, there's also pens and pencils, so if you need those, raise your hand. He's going to pass out, along with Keith, some of these booklets. And this is just a way to let some of these instructions dwell a little deeper into our hearts. So what I'd like to do is, for a few minutes while the band begins playing, that you would maybe take this booklet and look at it. And if, uh, and if for whatever reason um, you need help reading, then, then people can read with you and you can do it with somebody else. 